really probably don't need this to say this to all of you, but Minneapolis, our nation, really the world, has witnessed this incredibly and disturbing loss of life. My heart goes out to George Floyd. My heart goes out to his family. My heart goes out to his friends. And my heart goes out to the community. We are grieving and we will continue to grieve. Her apology is sincere. I'm not sure if in that apology she recognizes that while she may not be or consider herself a racist, that particular act was definitely racist. Why is the man who killed George Floyd not in jail? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Actually... I'm Queasy Eddie for your weekly drive time Trump cast. And everyone, not just my sidekick, looks like something the cat dragged in. We really have had a freaky week so far. And it seems like this country's on fire. Like all the dumpsters from the heyday of the phrase dumpster fire have been piled into a galactic sized dumpster, doused in gasoline, and mushroom clouded up and are now shedding radioactive coronavirus particles over all the living and all the dead from sea to pollution dimmed, formerly shining sea. And there's actual fire. Parts of Minneapolis are now destroyed after two straight nights of police rampaging through what started as a protest and then turned into a rebellion over the death of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer. The police have acknowledged that the vast majority of the protests have been peaceful, but their violent interventions, and it was a cop who pinned Floyd under his knee and choked him to death, naturally set off vandalism. Videos now show half a dozen people. I've seen uh, young white women, mostly white people, actually, some in masks against the coronavirus, looting a target. On Wednesday, one man was shot dead, possibly by a pawn shop owner. (sighs) And then, of course, are the hour-by-hour tensions in every city and state about these mask wars, economic despair, the joblessness, the sitting autocracy, the upcoming election that Trump is working hard to delegitimate in the event he loses, the unmasked gunman who occupied the Michigan state capitol without a word, let alone tear gas from the police, and the eruptions of racist threats to, of all things, a bird watcher in Central Park. Am I leaving something out? I hope not. But if I am, I have the perfect guest to fill me in. He never misses a trick. He's Jason Johnson, a professor in the School of Global Journalism and Communication at Morgan State, a contributor at MSNBC, The Griot, and Sirius XM. Jason's got a BA from my alma mater, UVA, and a PhD from UNC. We're going to talk about racism, violence, deadly pathogens, the far-right coup, George Floyd, and even the concept of the Karen. Also, how to survive the scorched summer hellscape ahead. Jason, welcome back to Trumpcast. Thank you so very much. I'm happy to be here, Virginia, in the middle of pandemic life. God, in the middle of pandemic life and also the powder keg that is our country. Yes. I actually feel like I can smell TNT when Uh, I walk on the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really volatile out there. And in some ways it always has been, but I think it's gotten worse since the end of the Obama administration, since our current president. I mean, we are facing legitimate 
economic anxiety right now with 30 million people out of work. And it's, it's bringing out the worst, the worst in a lot of different kinds of people in this country. And uh, look, we have to do something about it collectively because there is no operating as an individual in this space right now. We can't do it. No, that's exactly right. In fact, I just heard um, Bill McKibben, you know, the en- environmentalist, mm-hmm. say that, you know, we got awfully excited about the possibility that the, you know, us refraining from commuting, taking airplanes, heating and cooling office buildings was going to have a great upside for the environment. And what he said is it's affected carbonization by about 7%. Right. That these individual actions, we've got to just move to putting the oil and gas companies out of business. That's the only way to go. And it is a perfect case for we need big structural change, as the Warren Democrats say. And it's the only way. I mean, if all of us stopping taking airplanes has not made a significant dent in carbon, this is not an individual thing. No, no, it's not an individual thing. And, and here's the other thing, Virginia, that's key, because I've read some of those. I've seen that 7% figure. Yeah. A lot of environmentalists and scientists have been saying, yeah, that's cute, but literally to avert disaster, we'd have to drop by this amount every year. Every year, we'd have to drop by 7% in order to keep the coasts from being completely flooded. What I've found sort of interesting in my own sort of my own little personal ecosystem, right? I'm not driving as much. Uh, I'm not leaving the house as often. Ironically, my air conditioning went out, so my house is incredibly hot right now. Uh, <laughs> I've got a fan like right next to me. That's but very noble thing, of you, by the way. I know, I know. It's like I'm, I have no carbon footprint right now, none, except for this, <laughs> except for this laptop. But it's been so interesting to watch the wildlife. I, I mean, you know, yeah. you see, you see deer, you see animals. I, I walked outside of my condo two days ago. There was a collection of geese. I was like, "Where are you?" <laughs> like, but but all these humans being gone. They are free to sort of operate the way they want to. So we're we're that's the positive end. The negative end is they've been talking about sort of the the rat problems in places like New York and Chicago, where since there aren't commuters providing garbage, they've actually become more aggressive about going into people's homes. And I think I've heard about coyotes in Los Angeles. I mean, it is incredibly interesting. And maybe you'll think this is an awkward transition. I hope not. But I saw my partner yesterday uh, with binoculars and his bird book out. And I was like, you're only doing this to copy Christian Cooper. I mean, come on. (laughs) Like, we're all birders now. Yes. You know? And the fact that... This week, right? It's this week. Jeez. We've already seen this really like potent showdown right. between a clumsy dog owner. Let's just, before we even That's get to That's a nice this, way of putting it. I yes. mean, that spaniel was suffering. Yeah. An irresponsible spaniel owner. How about that? And a birder mm-hmm. over this natural patch of ground uh, that's known to be wild, the Ramble in Central Park. I mean, you know, it begins with these sort of animals involved, kind of class doppelgangers, as right. a friend of mine said. They have the same last name. It's Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper. He's a Harvard birder, bird nerd, and uh, she's a some does something in finance or did something in finance until she was not fired. Anymore. Yeah, tell us about that event. So there's a lot of layers to this, uh, not just about sort of identity and class, but also sort of technology. Right off the bat. This is a quintessential example of, of how racism has very real manifest impacts on Black people's daily lives. Um, I do not think it is hyperbole. Amy Cooper essentially tried to turn the police into like her murder concierge service. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you're threatening to call the cops on a guy and you're actively lying about it, 
right? Like there was no, she wasn't, you know, the fact that she changed her voice, it was people of comedy. It's like the scene out of Get Out, like, oh my God, help, 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 while she's still clearly not in danger. And the fact that she was so comfortable doing that, what first struck me about it was not that I was surprised because I've had that happen to me. Uh, I've had that happen to me with white men. I've had white women do that to me. But it also made me think, how many other people has she done this to? How many interns at her company did she just lie on because she didn't want a black person around? How many times did she say, I just don't like this black employee and just came up with a story? Keisha's the one who stole your sandwich in the back, you know, in, in, in the dining lounge of our company. The kind of lying and the dangers economically and physically that that can impart upon black people is a day-to-day reality and not enough consequences. Okay, fine, so she gets fired. Justine Sacco, who made those comments about going to Africa and getting AIDS, she got rehired a couple months later. She should actually face legal consequences for lying to the police and trying to file a false report. Yeah. I mean, and as you say, calling out the calling in the guns that she sees as being on her side over and against uh, Christian Cooper's side. One of the things that was kind of astounding to me about that event is we have a lot of cases across the country of people sort of scolding each other you know, guns came out this week, so it's a little complicated. But the, the the other thing contributing to the powder keg feeling is the kind of sharks and jets thing of masked and unmasked people. Right. And, you know, we had the a murder in Flint, Michigan, when a security guard urged customers at a dollar store to wear masks, and then they came back and killed him. Yeah. And then um, I, I think another incident, the other way around, a restaurant in Georgia says its employees can't come in a restaurant servers Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. they have masks on yeah Um, Yeah. people getting yelled at for wearing masks for not wearing masks it kind of it reminds me of the taliban saying you must wear a hijab and france saying you cannot wear a hijab so it's i mean it's very very tense atmosphere what i did admire about christian cooper aside from the fact that he's a perfect person like clearly like it's annoying how perfect he is yes there's not a he's no angel argument with him right but that it was bold for him to be the scolder because mm-hmm. it is usually on the street people of color and women who are constantly getting scolded and he was like i'm the one that knows the rules of this place right. so you know where you get probably told to move along or step off or stop doing whatever i get told to smile you know to you know not do xyz that i'm doing something wrong that i'm uh, you know a lot of the time we get scolded for how we can take care of our kids we get scolded for all kinds of cultural matters and those are potentially incendiary moments. But I just got told I had to walk six foot back from someone in the in the grocery line and not four feet back. And let me tell you how it went. Hey, could you step back a couple of a couple of feet? And I know that's the rule. She worked there, just like Cooper was talking about the rule. And I said, God, you know, I'm still getting used to this. Of course. Some of this is about, and you, you, make, you make an excellent point about like who gets the scold and who has the rules. Yep. Some of it's about identity, but it also has become this really sort of poisonous uh, sort of way of public harassment. I'll give you two examples. So first you start with Christian Cooper, right? You know, the fact that he is a, a, a virtue signaling fantasy, right? <laughs> he's, yes. he's, this, he's this ridiculously good looking 57 year old gay black man with a Harvard education who goes bird watching. Yeah. I have friends who are like, but is he single? Like, like that, like <laughs> yes. he's, you know, he's like, he's an American hero. Like, like yes. they're the, 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 the moderate liberal white, like there's no parts of America, right. That can, unless you're just a vehement bigot, 
that could stand against him symbolically. And he was right. And, and not just right, but for him to say what he was saying, he's like, look, because loose dogs are a danger to birds. Like there's an actual practical Audubon Society bird watching element to this. But I also say this, it's also about collective power. And he was able to use collective power by sharing this with his sister in a video goes viral. Yesterday, I was going to Home Depot uh, because I, 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 don't, I, I don't have a green thumb. I, I am thumbs down in Gladiator. I can't grow a thing. But I, <laughs> but I have like one plant. I, I planted a carrot outside my house, right? So I'm going to Home Depot to get some new soil. And there's a, there's a black woman there, older black woman. She's got a mask. She's sort of the door greeter. I see this young white guy, 20-something, whatever. No mask. He's, he's barging in. And the woman politely says, excuse me, sir, you're not allowed to come into the store without a mask. And he turns to her with this sort of disingenuous, hostile expression of like, oh, I didn't know that. Is that like a store rule or is that like a rule with the state or whatever it is? And the woman's like, well, actually, it's both. He's like, well, I didn't hear about it. Maybe. And I stepped in and I said, it's a state law. And I think when he saw me and saw that he wasn't just going to be able to bully or walk past this woman, he turns to me. He's like, well, I hadn't heard about it. I was like, it's right there on the sign. We're in Maryland. Everyone's known this for months. Yeah. And then he sort of scurries off. Now, he didn't care about going into Home Depot because he could have just gone to his car and gotten a sweater or whatever. It was a way for him to bully this woman and also assert his power and influence. So I think a lot of this we have to understand is this pandemic is giving people who are already hostile an opportunity to flex even more, whether that's a social environment or a cultural environment or a park or a Home Depot in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., because they feel they feel entrapped by science and they want to take it out on anyone else they can. I really do like, though, what you said about collective action and kind of kind of coming up sort of behind this behind this woman and just saying it's a state law because she's she's scrambling. These are such heated confrontations, as we uh, you know, as we both know, and they can go wrong so easily. And, you know, it is uncomfortable to be scolded. And one of the things that you did by saying it's a state law, you're saying you had a mask on, I'm sure you're saying it binds me too. Right. Like maybe we'd all like to take our dogs off a leash. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, but how annoying. But we all have to wear these masks and they're soggy and disgusting and nobody likes it. But the law is binding on all of us. That seems to be sort of the way to address these things. Like this is also confusing. But right now we have to stand six feet distance. Like I'm with you. Uh, These things just came down from on high. I'm not the scientist. I'm not Dr. Fauci who makes the rules. I'm just another citizen trying to get along in this world. And I, I like. I think that if we're going to choose to scold each other in any setting, if we don't have the law and a sign behind us saying swim at your own risk or don't swim at whatever in this place, then I think we really need to show that we're all in this together. Because how that in Central Park between Cooper and Cooper turned into a culture war with the cops involved. I mean, who is on some kind of crazy edge? It's like her viral load must be over the top so much that like the slightest piece of dust is enough to get her hysterical, you know, and race and the racist hysteria to have that so close to the surface, like Mm -hmm. to be able to draw that gun, you know, it must mean she's like trigger finger. And that she's done this multiple times. And, and, And Virginia, here's the other thing. Not that she's done this multiple times, not just that it was unnecessary, not just that it was hostile, not just that she was lying, but she did this fully aware of the fact that she was being filmed. So she felt that if the police were to arrive, 
that her word would be stronger than the actual video evidence of the confrontation, or quite frankly, she didn't care because she assumed he would be dead or beaten by them. And I think it's very important that we understand when we talk about Starbucks, we talk about uh, Ahmaud Arbery, we talk about George Floyd, we talk about Atiana Jefferson, we talk about Breonna Taylor, that we cannot pretend in public discourse that the people who engage in these activities, right, do not know what the consequences could be. They are aware of what the consequences could be, right? If, if, if when you're a kid, right, if your mom says, you know, wait till your dad gets home, mm -hmm. she is aware of the range of consequences yes. that that could entail. And if she says, wait till your dad comes home and she knows your dad is a raging alcoholic, then she's trying to get you abused. Yeah. And that's what we've got going on here. She's trying to conjure something at her back so that she doesn't have to have the presence of mind, the affect regulation to see through what really ought to be a very civilized encounter in Central Park among, you know, uh, between two extraordinary highly educated, highly well educated off people. Yes. People. Um, on the education question and the idea of Christian Cooper as, you know, everybody's perfect son in law um, is uh, <laughs> he's like um, he's like the, the gay Sidney Poitier and guess who's coming to dinner or something. Yes. Just like, how does this even become a race test when, you know, when the person is like at Obama levels of, you know, grace and morality and education and accomplishment, it's hard to stabilize the conflict for race. Or maybe that's what stabilizes it the most. That's she had absolutely no yeah. reason to be afraid of him. If he was no angel, she would have some kind of idea that like, you know, he'd involved in petty crime, but clearly he hadn't. This is my question for you. Years ago, the documentary about Mike Tyson came out. My mother saw it. She's white, might surprise you. And she said, Virginia, is it racist that I find Mike Tyson scary? And I said, no. Mike Tyson is accused ra an accused rapist and seems like, oh, a convicted rapist, right? Who is a Brownsville boxer. Like, if his opponents didn't find him scary, he would not be doing his job. Right. But when I look at the black men in Congress, the, you know, the black men basically that have emerged since Obama, that's, you know, all the graduates of Harvard and Harvard Law School and whatever, how are, is there like the fear should be of people just if we're conditioning ourselves that look like Brett Kavanaugh, that look like Harvey Weinstein, that look like Jeffrey Epstein, like the, I know. So like it not even <laughs> you don't even have to sort of overcome your idea that like like any black guy could be Mike Tyson because right. we're so now conditioned to see, you know, this. The, I don't know. These the men of extreme accomplishment. I'm just surprised that this is the time. This is the time that instead of saying, you know, I'd cross the street to avoid Brett Kavanaugh, which I would do, by the way, even right. though he looks like a cousin of mine, you know, that like it's just anyway, I'm just surprised. I'm just so surprised that she moved to that kind of explosive fear that must be just so deep in her brain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it you know, we, we live in a country that is is racist and built upon racist principles. And you have to actually actively work to make yourself, uh, you know, it's like Ibram Kendi's, you know, book. You have to work to be anti-racist. But it also has to do, as you mentioned, so much of this is about identity. The reason that white people don't go around fearing the Harvey Weinsteins or fearing the Brett Kavanaugh's or fearing these other individuals or, or feeling fearing the Steve Bannons or the Donald Trumps of the world. Exactly. It's because they see themselves in those people, even with those flaws. I'll give you a quick example. I used to always say this. I have a, a former student of mine. 
uh, who was very, very conservative. And we were having this conversation. She was a, she was a military police officer. And we were talking about guns and violence and the shooting of unarmed black people and these sorts of things. And, and she was like, well, you know, people are afraid. They've got concerns, et cetera, et cetera. I said, okay, let's hold on that idea of fear, as you sort of mentioned fear. I said, why is it that we don't hear about more incidents of death when military police have to intervene on base, right? Because everybody that you're encountering on base is a trained soldier that knows how to kill. Mm -hmm. Why is it that we don't hear about people dying in car accidents or pullovers or domestic violence cases on base? Why don't we hear about that? I say it's because when those military police go in, they see another soldier. Mm-hmm. They hear that identity and they're going to do everything in that power, even though the man or woman across from them knows how to kill, has been trained by this government to kill. They're going to do everything they can to de-escalate the situation and save that life because they see a kinship. I said that that is what we see with police violence. That is what we see with Amy Cooper. They do not see the humanity. They do not see a kinship and the other person they interact with and therefore any consequence is acceptable. Yeah, I mean, that's that sounds absolutely right. And that really does explain something. I also feel like so I think I've told the story on the show before, but a uh, sort of fairly prominent now Trumpite, I guess he's sort of like in the Ann Coulter in the Ann Coulter space where she's either radically against him or radically for him. I was on a panel with him and because I had been for surprising, a little surprise you to know, I was for Hillary in the election um, and not Trump. He he got in, this is in Las Vegas, he got in some armed guards, armed security detail in case uh, any, he called them supporters of mine or anyone who also was a Hillary supporter like me went to attack him. Wow. And I, and you know, the whole killery thing, right? So I was like, sorry, what is it about these like aging white women in pantsuits who are against (laughs) guns, who don't have friends with guns, who don't use guns that is so terrifying? It's, there's a reversal where all I can say, see if you think this is right. Mm -hmm. I think Christian Cooper represents a moral burden to the Karen, to the Aunt Amy Cooper in the situation, right? You said <laughs> sorry, it. You sorry, said sorry, I didn't sorry. say it. I was mistaking her name. <laughs> that wow. Oh no! Oh no! Cancelled. Um, but to, I think that yeah, I don't know. I think he's a birder, and she's she feels like she's the dog, and she's gonna wreck his fragile animal. And also, you know, the whole white man's burden thing—that you have a moral responsibility to not be racist in that situation. And and all of that pulls at her in this way that makes her hate you hate a person who exerts that kind of pull on you. The you know? catch though, the catch of Virginia is she doesn't know any of that. Right? Like, yes. like we she knew nothing about Christian Cooper except that he was a black guy who ostensibly was looking at birds. She knew nothing about his education. She knew nothing about his personal life. She knew nothing. And so that's the other important thing to remember. Look, I could walk around with a shirt that says I have a PhD every day. It wouldn't make a difference. It wouldn't change. It wouldn't change when police officers followed me behind my house when I worked on a campus and pulled guns on me, right? right? I'm faculty. So again, the level of education that Black people attain and, and, and this is also, I think, what's so key that we have to understand. You, you talked some, we were talking about science, the, the idea of sort of allostatic load, that the way that the brain has to process risk and the level of risk and danger that Black people are at, which is why we die of higher rates of COVID because we're constantly under stress. You could be Atiana Jefferson, you could be in your own house playing video games, you could be going for a job, you could be bird watching, you could be anything. 
And white violence does not care. It does not care about your level of education. It does not care what you're doing. And so that's the issue that I think always has to be brought out from this, that I look, quite frankly, I am sick and tired of, of having discussions about the consequences for police officers or individuals after the fact. I think we need to put laws in place and there need to be arguments and rebellions and fights and protests about what we do to make this kind of behavior so dangerous and problematic that people don't engage in it to begin with. That's where it needs to start. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I love this allostatic load idea. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So in the culture, if I mean, if you're also talking about apprehension of threats in the world, we are in the midst of electromicroscopic invisible particles, viral particles that are pathogenic to our systems. And every time we choose to wear a mask or not wear a mask, we're thinking about this threatening swarm that that could be shed by any average Joe. So there's no way to tell looking at someone, you know, evaluating them on class or education or anything, who's going to be shedding those particles. So we have to keep this, this extreme distance from each other, even our friends. So that is, I mean, quite literally might represent a tax, some kind of tax on the body, right? Oh, yeah. But but then we have, I thought the max, mask unmask thing would be the nexus for all of this. I thought all summer, the unmasked Trumpites who want to get him reelected by starting the economy would be showing up in swimming pools and yelling at the masked <laughs> people. And we would have like a full, you know, a full West Side story. Right. Maybe we'd even break into dance. Um, <laughs> but for it it seems to have dragged into it you know a kind of like what do you else do you call it this sort of race that like this incredible aggression on the part of a dominant class uh, right. toward black people and this is where we get to George Floyd well it, it's where we get to George Floyd because i also think we have to remember that uh, i've i've had friends joke about this you see it on twitter much of this behavior that's being called for for our own safety was already necessary for the safety of black people walking 6 feet away from a white woman who might think like these people were doing that anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, like I, you know, I, I knock on doors and I remember like having to knock on doors. I had a crazy sales job when I was a kid and like, I automatically stood six, six feet away. Like these are not new things. The increased danger comes from what appears to be a racialized element of, of how COVID kills people that there seem to be slightly higher rates when we talk about black people because of preexisting conditions, but also it plays into the general lack of concern about black lives. What happened to George Floyd is just a murder. It was a murder in broad daylight. It was a murder that was participated in by four or five other police officers. And they will not be held accountable in the way that George Floyd would be held accountable if there was just a video of him putting his knee down on any random white person's neck for nine minutes until they die. That's the problem, that this man was murdered in broad daylight and nothing's going to happen. That Ahmaud Arbery could be jogging, he's murdered in broad daylight, and it took two months and somebody naively releasing a video that they thought would exonerate people for him to be, you know, for him to actually receive some semblance of post-mortem justice. But here's the other scary part. Last night, we saw a rebellion in the city of Minneapolis. Very big on this. This is a piece I have, a political contributor at the Grio. It's a piece I have coming out next. We have to be clear in how we discuss how people of color and how Black folk respond to this, right? These aren't riots. No, riots require that there's an existing peace that you are then breaking. There is no peace for Black people. There is no peace when state-sponsored violence is consistently approved and explained and justified. Yeah. 
people are rebelling and, and, and with good reason. Is, so uh, Christina Greer was on the show last week and she um, corrected me when I referred to the Rodney King I won't even use the word, the old thing they used to be called. Yes. Um, it's like the exonerated five, you mm-hmm. know, they're not the Central Park five anymore. All right. right. So, she, and she corrected me and said rebellion. And that in, that was the first time I'd heard it. And I was interested. Um, tell me more about w- what that means, that there's no peace to break. Yes. You know, so, and, and maybe where that falls in no justice, no peace, because that's sort of where we're headed right. this summer. I mean, you know. Oh, we're about to have a long, hot summer. Yeah, this I is mean, this is yeah, this is not going to be good. It's like the day in "Do the Right Thing," you know, in the very in the we're at the like beginning where yes. like oh, yeah, that's just a little friction, you know, and uh, and or maybe we're maybe we're at the midpoint or something where you you think maybe it could go either way. We could smuggle Biden in, and then it would be like <laughs> Obama times again. No, no, I think we're gonna. I'll probably no. have you back in August, and things are going to be even worse. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, I mean, you got 30 million people out of work. Um, you have people are, uh, are not able to commune uh, and support each other the way that they're used to. Uh, and then you have sort of this, this larger death. And, and here's what's key about this term. Now, allow me to go back like we're in high school forensics, high school Please. debate. Yeah. Webster's definition of a riot is a public, a group disruption of the peace, usually with sort of attendant property damage, right? So, okay. Is there property damage in Minnesota, in Minneapolis? Yes, there is. But I can tell you as someone who's been to many protests, who's been to the Ferguson riots, and this is something that I think oftentimes the media misses and and, and just sometimes just lies about and misinterprets. A lot of the damage that you see that is called rioting is actually caused by the police. I don't know if you've ever experienced this or any of the people listening have experienced this. Have you ever touched, have you ever touched a tear gas canister hours after it's been launched? They are hot. You see police shooting munitions all over the place. They're hot. They get in garbage. They set fires to things. Tear gas, bullets, munitions. That's how these things tend to happen. Mm-hmm. You, think mm-hmm. they, you think they don't hit windows? You think they don't break windows? And the second part of it is, look, opportunistic crime occurs when the police are distracted. So if I know that the cops are over there beating the crap, out of a bunch of men, women, and children who are protesting with peace signs, then I am going to go knock over the T-Mobile store because I know you're not going to stop me. People who are coming out to protest are not turning into, they're, they're not looting. So that's the first part. The second part is this. You have to have existing peace for you to then engage in a riot. Mm-hmm. And we don't live in peace, whether I talked about the allostatic state, whether it's the danger and fear that Black people live in every single second of their lives. So we can't call these things riots. They are rebellions. They are protests. When you see somebody standing outside the Michigan state capitol with guns threatening people saying, we're rebelling against tyranny. No, that's not tyranny. That's public health. Tyranny is, I can get shot. I can get killed in broad daylight by a police officer whose greatest consequence is he gets fired and he'll probably have another job in the metro area within two months. And when we protest, there's tear gas and there's, uh, yeah, rust. And also, they start out by bringing in riot control yes. that then frames it as a riot. I totally get it now. You probably know because you know everything about American history. But um, <laughs> but do uh, you know the Astor Place riots? It's one of my favorites. Sounds familiar. Remind me. Yes. Yeah. 19th century uh, group of Irish. I mean, thing, this is when things were tense. Uh, <laughs> supporters of one tenor of the opera mm-hmm. against 
Italian supporters of another tenor at the opera. And nobody was shot first. Nobody was anything first. They just started in kind of like a wild, heated, drunken brawl that -hmm. then led into them breaking into stores and stuff, all in the name of their tenor. So, you know, the stakes were high here. Right, right. Um, we're talking opera, so, you know. But that sounds like a riot, yes, right? Like, yes. And I don't know that there was any police involvement or that the police involvement had much to do with it. So that is very, that is a really interesting distinction. Bring out the riot gear. And then, of course, everyone was making the point that the Michigan Michigan capital had been occupied yes. by armed white people. Yes, And yes. Michigan just decided, all right, we'll shut down. You guys have a point. And here's the danger. Here's the danger of this, Virginia, for, for all of us, all of us going forward. That is a victory for the alt-right and the terrorists in this country whose behavior is encouraged and supported by the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. They shut down a state government by just showing up with guns and threatening people. And you notice, Mm -hmm. you notice that police always tend to react with much more violence to black people, brown people, or liberal white people protesting. You Mm -hmm. notice that? Because Mm -hmm. I don't remember the last time I saw tear gas being used at a pro-life rally. Don't think I've seen that, right? You have a bunch of guys, you have a bunch of guys showing up with guns threatening elected officials for doing their jobs. Did the police arrest anybody, take anybody out? No, but here's the problem. They're going to do this come election time. They will show up at polling places. They will show up at at state election offices where they're counting ballots. They have been shown already that you can use violence and threats and intimidation to disrupt the functioning of government. What do you think terrorism is except the threat or use of violence that supersedes what happens at the ballot box? So that's the real fear about what I saw. It's not just that a bunch of alt, you know, alt-right people are pretending that they care about corona. It's because that was a slow-moving, that was a slow-moving terrorist action and coup. Uh, I, I mean, yes. I, I don't know if you were, but I was somewhat impressed by Jack Dorsey this week for doing this weird double move. So first, he told the widower of, uh, I think it's Klausudis, of Lori Klausudis, um, that he would not take down tweets that this grieving widower found, uh, you know, conspiracy tweets from Trump that he found harmful and upsetting. So it's sort of, you know, an idea of like, feelings, you know, there's certain discourse around feelings that he doesn't want to regulate, I guess, uh, Dorsey. And we can discuss that opinion. But what was interesting is that in the context of that, he also made, he and Twitter also made a specific law around election interference and, and voter suppression, especially around. So, and that's what he alluded to when he did the fact check of the two tweets by Trump that were clearly meant to suppress the vote. So, and he's, that is there, he's, he's doing some kind of activist and quite aggressive move on behalf of election security, of uh, preventing voter suppression, of preventing voters from getting misdirection about when they need to register, not needing to register and the, and the mail-in campaign that is being started in sync with what, what you call this coup. And I thought that was, there was a kind of strange aggression and wisdom and imagination to making that move? It's a nice start. I mean, I think that there's a really scary place that I don't think we realize that we're headed to yet. And we're 30 years from this being fixed because the people who make our laws at both the state and the national level do not yet understand the importance of social media. Um, Jack basically decided to actually have a conscience about public discourse. And that's a good thing, right? But the problem is that Facebook, 
right? <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg has basically stood by and said, well, we're not going to do anything. We're going to continue to sell your information. We're, we're not going to do anything. Yeah. And the problem is we're not talking about issues of just free speech. We're talking about people with platforms that use them to lie and spread disinformation that can actually be damaging to the body politic. Alex Jones can say whatever he wants, right? But when Alex Jones moves from a crazy conspiracy, right, to then saying, well, you know what, if you take these magic beans that I got out of my backyard, they'll clear coronavirus, that's where you have to stop people, right? Yeah. If the president says, I hate this show host on, on MS or CNN or Fox or everything else like that, he can say whatever lies he wants. But if the president starts saying, uh, suggesting that someone committed a murder, then you don't have to allow that on your platform. And it has nothing to do with free speech. And it's really because a lot of these tech people who run these large platforms, most a lot of them are conservatives or they're libertarians or they're deathly afraid of being regulated by a suddenly tech awakened Congress. And that's what a lot of this is about. They want this nonsense to continue because they don't want anyone to ever come in and say, look, you guys are going to have to clean up your act. I think that's right as a general rule. I'm only seeing, and I don't want to put too much stock in it because I don't trust any billionaires, Right. <laughs> but the fact that Dorsey pledged $1 billion to help COVID with the relief effort, and then also the, on the same day that he did the fact check, uh, pledged $10 million toward the universal basic income that he's interested in letting, giving cash payouts to cash gifts to especially needy families. And someone said that they filled out the form to say, you know, that coronavirus had affected their family in these ways right. and their income was low and that they had the, I mean, this is tech for you. They had the the thousand dollars within the minute, you know, right. like someone right. Venmoing at you to, to you. And I sort of thought, that's the kind of direct action that we have to see from tech companies, that they're, they, they're giving dividends back to people. And UBI is, I think, a very good plan. Anyway, but I don't want to praise him too much. I do want to say that it is interesting to me that he has his eye on civic integrity of all yes. the things, right? Mm -hmm. So he could have been interested in bullying. He could have been interested in falsehood, just falsehood, yes. right? Yes, false, yes, just truth-telling. Yes. Just truth, truth-telling. He could be interested in protecting this widower, protecting Joe Scarborough. Like, there's mm -hmm. all kinds of axes of moral responsibility. But the fact that he's chosen particularly this voter suppression, you cannot say, you know, Democrats vote on Monday anymore, you know, and he will put a red mark on that and mark it as false. Um, right. And I, 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 even if it's not coming from the president. And I do think that one, marking the president as a liar for the first time in a, by a big tech company, and two, <laughs> getting interested in election interference and voter suppression is at least in the balance, not as bad as Zuckerberg. How about that? <laughs> right, right. I mean, like, it's, look, it's a move in the right direction. And look, I, I'm not far enough to say that, like, you know, every billionaire is a policy failure. But I will say this. I think it's nice what Jack did, but whether it's Jack or it's Zuckerberg or it's Jeff Bezos or any of these guys, they're making bazillions of dollars when 30 million Americans are out of work. Their ability to make that money is because they rely upon an infrastructure, both policy-wise uh, and, and material-wise, that has been established in this country and held together by governments and laws that are trusted, blah, 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 blah. All that money is because we have a functioning society. So to just give back one little bit of, I guess I kind of care about the truth now, I'm not giving them much credit for that yeah. because they've been given so much more. Forgive it. It's my, my nerdy comic book Spider-Man thing. <laughs> like with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. That is not, that's, that's showing a negligible amount of responsibility for the amount of power 
that these people have first earned and then been given because I promise you, if they were operating in other countries, they would not be allowed to be yeah. this powerful. You yeah. couldn't do what you do with Facebook. Let Forget China. You couldn't do it in Brazil. You couldn't do it in France. You mm -hmm. couldn't do it in, in South Africa. So, mm -hmm. eh, I give them but so much credit. All right. I, I think I, I'm going to concede that one to you. I Because I'm a masochist, I, I, I don't know if you know what I'm doing, but yes. I'm going to invite you to oh tell me about how much white women suck. And I'm going to sit here and take it while you tell me what the following names mean to you. Yes. Okay. Karen, Shudder, uh, Jennifer, and uh, Becky. Oh, I got to dab down for this one. Okay. Okay. Um, so there's a couple of things with this. And I, I think this is important. We talked about this before. American names, right? American yeah. names for boys and girls were actually the top five names for black boys and black girls in America were pretty much identical. Just the order was changed up until the late 1960s, right? Oh. So okay. John, Mary, blah, blah, blah. Those yeah. names were actually really, really common. It was you the know late how, like you, I always discovered that the name of the name of rapper, I feel like the name of rappers, once you get around big pun or whatever, it right. seems like it's always Chris Williams. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. <laughs> Something simple. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's always, you know, it's, it's like, you know, Sean Carter, Sean yeah. Carter. It's not, it's not really all that sexy or exciting. <laughs> yeah. What you had happen in the early seventies with the rise of sort of black identity and black power movements was you had a move for people to start giving their children uh, names that were sort of allusions to Africa, even the name like Chanel. Now, there's a French Chanel, right, which is a French word, but also uh, the S-H-A-N comes from Shani, which is uh, Swahili for like Thursday. And a lot of West Africans would name their children part of your name. You would have three or four names, but it was based on the day of the week that you were born. So mm. a lot of these names, Keisha, Tanya, Shana, blah, blah, blah. It was black people recapturing their roots and identifying names and giving them their children. So you end up with black people having very, very, very original names, which is also a sign of a people sort of asserting themselves culturally and economically in the world. So there's there's a lot to this. And I, I wrote about this in an article for the source years ago uh, because of Kamvanjane Wallace, you know, who played Annie, was in Beast of the Wild. Yes. And, 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 and all these people were pretending that they couldn't pronounce her name. And she was like, but you can say Barishnikov. Like, it's yeah. just cultural competence. So here's the thing about Karen's and Becky's and Jen's, right? Becky is a name that's been around since the 80s, right? Becky was a valley girl name. That Becky is a name that was being used when Clueless came out in the late 90s. Oh, my God. Like, like it represents a sort of clueless, wealthy, privileged white woman in all things, in culture, pop culture, everything else like that. Mm -hmm. Then you start having Becca, and I have a great colleague, uh, Michael Harriet, who actually wrote a naming list of the difference between Becky, Becca, Rebecca, and how they change. Oh, and it's I as, gotta see it. It's, it's, it's as white women of certain class levels and awareness of their privilege begin to exercise that in the world around them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Becky is the 15-year-old girl who may say, oh my gosh, I can't believe this, blah, 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 blah. And she knows if she cries, she can get out of a parking ticket, right? Oh, yeah. Rebecca is a 43-year-old woman who knows fully well that if she calls the cops on Christian Cooper, that they'll take her word for it. That is a weaponized version of privilege as opposed to a passive understanding. Got it. Karen actually has a class element to it. A Karen is, depending on the circumstance, slightly more working class than a Becky or a Rebecca. Got it. The Karen has the frosted tips 
and the curled haircut. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. The, the Karen is screaming about the fact that she can't go into certain places and get a haircut that she really doesn't need anyway, because what's a haircut when you're running the risk of a life-threatening pandemic? So that's where these distinctions come in. Now, and Jen's are the same sort of thing. Jen is sort of a part of that privilege base. And wait, okay, so are these names chosen because they are not at all Black names? Because I think I remember your piece. Well, I started in like full confession, full disclosure to the listeners. I started to explain your piece to you before we started, (laughs) not knowing you had written it in the, I think the original act of mansplaining where you explain the other person's work to them and pretend you just thought of it. So anyway, apologies to you, but I think it was in your piece I learned there are basically no black girls and no black girls ever named Katie. There's certain names that are just so white. You know, they're the like Shaniqua of white women. Right. And so are these names, because they're, inc- they're of course familiar names to me. They're the names I grew up with. Some of my best friends are Jens. And yet they sound, do they just sound like not melodious to you? Or they sound like, or they're just not the people you grew up with. Well, so that sort of depends. Because I, I, like I said, I wrote a piece and in, 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 in read a bunch of different pieces when I was talking about naming. So here's the thing. I know plenty of black gens, right? Like one of my best friends, his oh, wife okay. is, is, is named Jen. Like Jennifer is not an uncommon black name. But what plays into this is it's not the commonality of the name. It's the association that comes with the name, right? So for example, there's a difference between a woman whose name is Ebony with a Y and an Ebony with an I. I've met white Ebony's with an I. I have never met a white woman with the name Ebony with a Y. Hmm. There is a difference between being named Keisha and being named LaKeisha. LaKeisha tends to imply class elements. That's not the case with Keisha. But here's the funny thing about it, and this goes with sort of black and white naming, right? If I walked onto the campus of Morgan State University, where I teach, which is an HBCU in the northeastern suburbs of Baltimore, or if I walked onto Spelman's campus in Atlanta, Georgia, and I said, hey, Keisha, like 20 girls, would change, yes, 20 yes. young women would turn their heads, right? Yes. Of all different class levels. If you say Katie... If I go to Chapel Hill and I say, hey, Katie, there's only a certain kind of woman who's going to say her name is Katie. I love I, it. You're right. So, you get a lot out of you. I mean, because uh, because uh, first names are chosen and they're yes. the they're what your parents sort of imagine they want from you. you right. Know? I exactly. have like a pretentious first name. So, <laughs> you, you know, it's you, very classy. It's a good Virginia. It's a very classy you. name. But yes. you've got that Greek Argonauts first yeah. name. So <laughs> your parents wanted a different thing from you, but they are more telling. It's not one of those things where you can dismiss and say the content of your character, color of your skin thing. Like your name is something you chose and did. It's like when people say, when people say about Trump, like, are you allowed to comment on his appearance? But his appearance is largely his invention. Exactly. So, you know, so I, I do get that. But what do you what do you think about if we call uh, Amy Amy Cooper, the the woman in in Central Park who who freaked out and made the racist call to the cops, a Karen. I mean, I feel like I'm saying this for other people, but what, <laughs> what when you're saying a middle-aged or low middle-aged or whatever she is, um white woman is a Karen, are we in trouble? You know, so, like are, is this a sexist thing? Is it a something? So I don't use it in public discourse. Okay. Right. In the same way that like, well, we're just talking, this is, just yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just <laughs> but, but, but in the same way, in the same way that like, I, like, I don't make fun, like you never think I've ever written or said, like, I don't call the president, the orange menace. I don't call people who support him Trumpkins. I just think for, for me as an academic, as a scholar, as a writer, and as somebody in public, just, I just, there's certain terms I just don't tend to use. Yeah. I don't think being called a Karen is inherently offensive. And here's why. 
because all naming is associated with power. And so unless you can associate that name with an oppression or power that comes with it, being a grown man, having someone else call me boy, okay, that is power because that means, okay, this person is attempting to demean me and infantilize me. Being called the N-word, that is power because as I, I, it's funny, I said this in an interview, <laughs> I don't know why everyone asked me this a couple weeks ago. I said, it's not the N-word itself that's the problem. It's the fact that if you'll call me the N-word in public, then I don't know what you're capable of, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like if you're willing to say that, you might be willing to do anything. That's what I hear right before a car drives past me and throws something at me or men jump out and try to shoot me. So Karen as a a slang colloquial term for a certain class and attitude of white women, which quite frankly is only seven months old, there's no power associated with that. There's no there's no massive pogrom against Karens in America, just like there wasn't a massive pogrom against Beckys or 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 Jens or anything else like that. So I think that's much ado about nothing. I wouldn't address somebody that way, but I understand the joking colloquialism, and I don't I don't trust people who say they're offended by it. I think it's disingenuous. Well, I'm not offended by it. <laughs> I wish that one of my best best true best friends, who's even been on the show, Karen Schwartz, is named Karen. I wish <laughs> I wish for now. I wish they had chosen Katie just for her. One thing I was amazed at during the OK Boomer heyday a year ago or whatever Mm. was I thought, and now we're going to slice and dice each other by this ridiculous generational thing. And, you know, I thought it was funny. OK Boomer is just funny. It just sounds Mm. funny when you say it. It sounds like that. I don't know. Wasn't there some OK I don't know. Wasn't there like some radio head album or something? Well, I don't know what I'm thinking. Okay, computer. Okay, computer. Anyway, yes. it sounded like that. But then I saw people getting offended at it. Right. But I also, at the same time, was like, man, do we really need a way to tribalize ourselves more? Like, am I could be like a Karen, okay, boomer. Like, we've got plenty of tribalism on our hands. Like, true. you know, and what I am worried about this summer, and I want to hear what you're worried about in this, what I, it's just, seems to be bound to be an incendiary summer. One of those summer of 77s, you know, that you sort of, you weren't there for, but, you know, people being stalked by serial killers and blackouts and like, it just, but what do you, if us, we're all carrying around first, the dread fear of the virus. Second, the fact that one in four of us is unemployed, dwindling income, fears about the environment, and then the usual slate of fears about our fascist authoritarian president for whom the show is named. How do you think we're going to manage this on the street? Like, just that the hostility is just so enormous. I mean, people side-eyeing people about their choices of face covering is not a good way to go into this election. I don't I don't think we're going to manage it well at all. I mean, like, you can you can talk about jets and snarks. I think of like the Sneeches and the Dr. <laughs> Seuss thing. Yes. Do you have a mask upon theirs? I mean, like, like people are not gonna people are not gonna handle this kind of behavior well. Um, and it's going to be different kinds of people. And what tends to happen in this country is that a and it, it is, is a core political science sort of theory that a hostile aggressive minority can almost always beat out a passive or neutral majority. It doesn't take that many people acting like jerks to intimidate the vast majority of the public. It only takes four or five guys dealing drugs and an entire block of a thousand people to terrorize everyone because most people are not selling drugs. They're not involved. And so what I see happening this summer as the coronavirus continues to kill thousands and thousands of people. And I want to point out for those who may be questioning this sort of thing or saying, okay, well, maybe things will change. 
I don't think everybody understands, and I know this because of some colleagues of mine that I know and have worked with, is that coronavirus, even if it doesn't kill you, people who survive are sometimes suffering long-term health consequences like diminished lung capacity and recovering from strokes and breathing issues. So as we see more people who die over the summer and then the care that they have to put into people who have survived this virus, and then an entire summer of young people, 15, 16, 17, 22, 23, young men and women who have no summer jobs, who can't go back to college, who have no youth programs, who have no summer camp, who are home with stressed out parents, the level and likelihood of absolute destruction and riots, real riots in our cities is highly likely. And when you have a president who refuses to acknowledge or take responsibility for anything, and in fact encourages this kind of dangerous behavior, we're not going to have a good summer. We're not going to have a good fall. And it's going to be up to either individuals or hoping and praying that you have a halfway decent mayor and governor to keep the streets from burning. You have such an orderly, non-stuttery way of talking, not not (laughs) inflamed, that I almost want to do this crazy thing to go out on, which is a role play where we have the Cooper to Cooper conversation. Okay. And we do it better. And I, I get to be Christian Cooper. Oh, wow. Okay. You get to be the birder. I'm Amy Cooper. (laughs) I think we are going to be having confrontations on the street around our personal behavior, our masks, our ways of handling our dogs a lot this summer. It's just my guess. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to do something that says what you say, which is we're all in it together, right? Yes. Okay. So uh, Christian Cooper says, hey, um, I'm a birder and the rule here is you have to keep your dog on the leash or it really affects the underbrush for the birds. And my response to you is, okay, well, I can see where my dog is and I don't think he's harming anyone. Yeah, I I know. I know it's a drag and I love dogs too, but you got to keep your dog on a leash here. Okay, fine. It doesn't have to be a big deal. As soon as he's done going to bathroom, I have my leash. I'm right here. As soon as he's done going, I'll put the leash on. Will that make you happy? Hey, thanks a lot. Fine, good. And then I go home and I tweet to my friends that I met a jerk and everybody's happy. (laughs) (laughs) No one calls the cops. I have a dinner party story on Zoom and everything's fine. We did it. All yes. right. We are now role models for all the <laughs> listeners. This yes. summer, as annoying as it is, you cannot get up in someone's face about their, you know, I oil my gun with liberal tears t-shirt, nor can you bother someone about whether they're six feet away. Leave that to the authorities. Yes. We are all in this together. Collective action works. And showing a little love and sympathy and empathy in a pandemic time is never going to cost you. That's right. My guest has been Jason Johnson. He's a professor at Morgan State University and a contributor at MSNBC. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks, Virginia. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Let's connect on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. And here's where things get serious. Just become a Slate Plus member. Don't overthink it. Today's the day. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. They just roll along with no ads for only $35 for the first year. And it's really important right now with cutbacks at Slate that you support our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.